It's so important for each of us as individuals to really do the work of like auditing what we spend our money on and having an idea not just of what we need to survive, but what we need to thrive, right? And that should be the starting point of every conversation you have about money. Because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what budget your company has or what budget that potential client has. What matters is what you need. Hi, I'm Emily Bellet, the founder of Espot.com, thriving community that financially empowers women, author of You're Not Broke, Your Pre Rich, and host of The Wallet. You've just heard from Abadezio Sunsade. She's the founder of Hustle Crew, a career advancement community on a mission to make tech more inclusive through talks, training, and mentorship. She began her career as an editorial intern for the Financial Times and led teams in growth oriented roles at leading tech companies. More recently, Abadezi started a new role as the global VP at Brandwatch. Research from the Inclusive Tech Alliance has highlighted that only 12.6% of board members in the country's largest tech firms are women, and that only 8.5% of senior leaders in the sector were from a black, Asian, minority ethnic background. We clearly still have a long way to go where gender and diversity in the UK tech industry is concerned, So what are some of the barriers that women and ethnic minorities are facing and what can we do to improve on this? Inclusion and diversity has become central to Abadis' mission, empowering women to recognize their worth and to ask for more. However, negotiating and understanding your own value can be tricky. Having this conversation can feel daunting and downright uncomfortable. In this episode, Abadis shares her own experience of salary negotiations, getting paid what you're worth as a business owner or freelancer, and her top tips for overcoming your fears so you can go into these conversations feeling like a million bucks. I'd also like to say a quick thank you to our sponsor, PensionBee. PensionBee has helped over 400,000 customers to be pension confident. It enables savers to take control of their finances by helping them transfer their old pensions together into one simple online plan. With PensionBee, you can manage your pension like you manage your bank account. Check your real-time balance, see your projected retirement income, and set up contributions and withdrawals, all from the palm of your hands. Plus, you'll get human support from your very own UK-based account manager, or as PensionBee calls them, beekeepers. You can sign up to PensionBee today with the names of your old pension providers in just five minutes, and if you're self-employed, you can start a new pension from scratch. As always, with investments, your capital is at risk. Please note that the information made available on this podcast is provided for educational purposes only and does not constitute financial advice. If you have any questions, you should seek advice from an independent financial advisor. Also, if you're investing money, make sure it's for the long term, you understand the risk, that you have done your own research and you understand what you're investing in. Hi, Abadezi. Hi, <laughs> how are you today? <laughs> I'm good, thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. No, thank you so much. We haven't met actually, which is crazy. <laughs> I know, we're like in the same <laughs> communities, like the family. and <laughs> <laughs> Like, you know, same spaces, mm. you know, same, same types of events, communities and stuff. But, you know, today I really want to talk to you about 
your journey because you've been doing like so many things, mostly like in tech, but also, you know, around diversity yeah. and you've been running workshops around, you know, understanding your worth and negotiating. So I think that's going to be a big um, topic for today. Definitely. <laughs> I wanted to start asking you about maybe your journey. So I know, you know, you start wherever you want, but I know, you know, you're, you're the founder of Hustle Crew. Yes. You also the global VP at Brandwatch. You did quite a few things before that. So maybe can, can you tell me about maybe your upbringing, wh where you come from and how did you end up working in tech? Yeah, I actually grew up in like a very traditional family. And I think that's why I've been very passionate about equality and equity and women's empowerment. I have a brother who's only a few years older than me, and we had very different expectations in our household. And I spent a lot of my life thinking about how unfair that was. So my dad's from Nigeria, my mom's from the Philippines. And say in probably both of those cultures, the role of a girl growing up at home is, you know, helping in the kitchen, helping with chores. I was always, you know, helping to cook dinner, helping to like lay the table while my brother could play video games and have fun on his computer. And I used to always think that that was really unfair. And, you know, my dad was very, very supportive of my education. I mean, he paid for all of my education and I have a very privileged education. I went to boarding school. I went to London School of Economics. But he did still kind of perpetuate some of those double standards at home. So, you know, he never kind of like told my brother, oh, you know, go help your sister with cooking or anything like that. And every time I tried to like push him to, he'd be like, oh, you know, that's just the way it is. Um, so I think it was this cultural background that made me like really, really interested in like, you know, how can I challenge that status quo and how can I do something differently and how can I be more independent and more autonomous. And as I got older, I really started to realize that money was the way to do that. So I remember, for example, being at home, uh, this is at our home in Washington, DC one summer. And because I didn't have a job, I couldn't really do anything unless I asked my parents for money. And then I just kind of had this realization like, wait, I can just get a job and then I'll have my own money and then I can start doing stuff. And it's weird because I think we weren't really a family that talked about money, right? So we weren't really that kind of family. I know some people kind of I don't know, are born with like a trust fund or an ISA or their parents tell them like, oh, save, you know, half of your first paycheck. Like we just didn't talk about money. We didn't talk about jobs. Like it was just very much like my dad was the provider and the rest of us were just there. So for me, then getting that job that summer, I was working as a lifeguard at a local pool. I was working in a call center after my lifeguard shift finished. Every week I'd get my paychecks. I'd take my little sisters out to the cinema, to the mall. I was like so liberated. So I then just started to realize like, okay, money is really important and money is going to be the thing that gets me the freedom, right, to do stuff. So I don't have to just be like bossed around at home. And I think um, studying economics was also a real motivating force in helping me be more like economically minded, financially minded. I just started to realize, you know, capitalism is a system that operates on capital. The hint is in the name. The more capital you have, the more power you have, the more influence you have. I also think because, you know, my parents split up when I was really young. I lived with my dad and my stepmom. My dad and my stepmom split up while I was at university. Both of those times, I could see what the impact is when you are a woman in a relationship where your husband is like the main breadwinner, like the only person really bringing in money. And I saw, 
you know, as a really young child, how it impacted my mother and her relationship with money and, and feeling that kind of stress of like, oh, there are things I want to buy you that I can't afford unless I ask your dad for more money. And seeing my stepmom go through that again also kind of gave me this idea like, I don't want to be like that. <laughs> you know, I love them and I respect them so much and they're incredible women, both of them. But I saw how not having financial liberty was impacting their mental health and even impacting the quality of life that they wanted to have. So all of those experiences made me someone that the minute I entered the workforce, I was really obsessed with this idea of I have to maximize my earning potential. Like it's not enough to just be okay or good or average. Like I have to earn the most I can possibly earn at all times. And it didn't feel unusual to have that because I was like with a very ambitious and competitive group of friends at university. And many of them are still my friends today. So you know, the guys were saying the same thing. You know, they were saying like, oh, I'm going to be on six figures by the time I'm 30. I'm going to retire by the time I'm 40. And so, yeah, I was just like, okay, cool. Like, it's okay to want to earn money uh, and have that independence and have that freedom. And, you know, we all have different motivations for why we're doing it. But yeah, so I think that's kind of then what gave me this sense of restlessness. Every time I was in a job, I wanted to know when am I getting promoted? <laughs> When am I getting a pay rise? When am I getting a bonus? And being a woman in tech is so hard, right? We don't have a lot of role models. We don't have a lot of opportunities. What I learned was the best way to jump in a pay band or a salary is to move roles, right? Because you just hit a wall in companies. Like there were so many times where I wanted to apply for a promotion, let's say at Groupon, the first startup that I worked for. And there was always some ridiculous reason why I wasn't the right person for it. I remember once someone gave me feedback. Literally, he said, we're looking for a big dog for this role and you're not a big dog. And I was like, what the hell does that even mean? Right. And so fine. You know, one day I got a recruiter from Amazon emailing me asking me, you know, would you like to work at Amazon? I was like, oh my gosh, this is awesome. Of course, I'd love to work at Amazon. And I knew I knew that they like gave you equity. I knew they paid you well. I knew they gave you big signing bonuses. I, I told her to call me on my lunch hour that day when she asked me what I earned. I think I was on like 35K at the time, but I told her I was on 45K. Uh, and she was like, oh, 45K, we can match that easily. And so I was just like, cool, I just got a 10 grand pay rise. <laughs> and it was just, again, one of those things where I started at Amazon. I really loved Amazon, but I was already thinking like, where will I grow here? Where will I grow? Like, do I have a path to the top. And I remember sitting with my colleague, Sarah, and we were looking at the org chart. We were literally huddled by my screen on a lunch hour, looking at the org chart, and we could see Jeff at the top, Jeff Bezos. And we're like, oh, who reports into Jeff? Oh, another group of white men. Okay, who reports into them? Oh, another group of white men. We're like scrolling down the org chart, trying to find women. Wow. And we just looked at each other and kind of thought, well, this isn't very inspiring. You know, where is the space for us yeah. up there? What are we working so hard for? Where are we going? And again, I moved jobs, right? I got another exciting offer. And this time it wasn't as exciting as I thought it was going to be, you know, a London-based startup. I didn't feel like a part of the team. I didn't feel included. I didn't like the culture. It was what I would probably characterize as like cliche, toxic startup bro culture. And so I left. And it was at that point where because of Amazon and finally learning how to save money, <laughs> selling my equity. I had a cushion. I had savings. I wasn't desperate to just jump into something new. Having had a negative experience in the last company, I was really mindful of like 
going into an environment where I would feel safe and supported. And eventually I was just completely inspired by this energy to just change the tech industry. I was just like, you know what? Why am I normalizing all of this negative attitudes towards women? Why am I normalizing all these negative attitudes towards women of color like myself? There has to be more work done in this space. And, you know, there were folks in the U.S. talking about diversity in tech. There were already folks in the U.K. talking about diversity in tech. And I was like, I want to be another voice in this movement. And so that's how Hustle Crew started. No, thank you for being so open about, you know, financial independence and, and the role money is playing in, you know, looking for a job. Because I think that's very important, especially in your maybe in your first years or first mm. job, because as you said, that gave you maybe this like security or freedom or at least enough money to to move on. And, and that gives you, I guess, choices to do whatever you want. Can you tell us about Hustle Crew and and how did you, you know, s- started basically on, on this mission about, you know, inclusion and, and diversity in tech? Yeah, I became really obsessed with self-help books and like careers books because Me when too. I, yeah, I just <laughs> love them. It's like cheaper yeah. than coaching, cheaper than therapy. And this was because when I looked at my really successful friends like, or friends who I defined as successful, friends who really enjoyed their job, were earning a lot of money, traveling to whatever festival or holiday they wanted to go on, living their best life. I saw that a lot of them just had skills or competencies that I felt were lacking in myself, whether that was their confidence in themselves, their ability to sell themselves, their ability to just ask for what they want, their ability to take risks, their ability to negotiate, work their network to land great opportunities. I just saw all of these things happening. And I saw that a lot of them could do those things because they went to Oxford and had this amazing network from Oxford University, or they went to Eton and had this amazing network from Eton boarding school, or they had a dad and a granddad and a great granddad that were all on the board of a bank or a big firm. And they had this knowledge that had just been in the air, in the atmosphere around them the whole time they were growing up, that the idea of not negotiating, the idea of not pushing for something, the idea of not asking for more had never even come into their imagination, right? Because they had just always been surrounded by networks, by communities that were extremely privileged and that made them believe they had a right to be there. And what I wanted to do with Hustle Crew was create that energy for people who didn't have that experience of life, right? I didn't, despite being in many privileged rooms, by because I was often the only black woman or the only you know black and Asian woman or the only woman, I never had that confidence. I never had that expectation of myself that I could ask for more and I should ask for more and I deserve more. I had the opposite of a lot of my friends who I admired. I had an imposter syndrome. I was like, I actually am waiting for everyone to find out that I am inferior (laughs) and I am stupid and I'm not even sure I believe myself. But it was by doing research on imposter syndrome and doing research on bias against women and bias against people of color, the double standards, microaggressions, gaslighting, that I started to realize, okay, the world doesn't actually make sense. (laughs) Like people tell you to be rational or people tell you to use your common sense. But as long as bias exists... And we have double standards, like we treat men one way, we treat women the other way, then the world doesn't make any sense. And that's okay. So what can I do? What can I do to help myself and help people like me in a world that doesn't make sense? And for me, it was about how do I replicate 
those networks? How do I replicate community? And Hustle Crew was the way for me to do that. And I remember the very, very, very first Hustle Crew meetup, South Bank Center, because it's a free venue <laughs> right by Waterloo, <laughs> easy for everyone to get to. And I sat down and I said, what is the one thing that we all want to be doing better at in our career? And we literally just like went around the room. For some people, they were unemployed, trying to get into a new job. Other people, they were stuck in one career path, trying to break into a new one. For others, they'd been on the same salary for three years, despite growing responsibilities, reaching on their targets. And they desperately wanted to be able to negotiate effectively. And so I said, okay, let's go around the room and now share tactics, share advice. Here's what I do when I negotiate. Have you tried this? Have you tried that? Does anyone else have anything to say? Someone else would say, oh, you want to move into engineering? Like, come to my boot camp. Come do this hackathon with me. I'll help you. Oh, you're trying to move into another path? Oh, where where are you applying for? Oh, I have a cousin there. Let me get you to connect with him. And he'll tell you about the company. Maybe he can even refer you. So that's really what the energy was at the start, right? We don't necessarily belong to the groups of people where doors just open for us naturally, but we can create that by purposefully choosing to support each other and leverage whatever access we have, whatever privilege we have, whatever influence we have to help each other out. And it's just grown from there. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. I was so shocked to read in the Financial Times, I think it was this month that you know the FTSE 100 firms have no black executives in their top three roles. Wow. And boardroom diversity report shows drop to zero for the first time since 2014. I mean, there's lots of different research, but another one shows that inclusion in the UK tech industry, only 12.6% of board members in the country's large tech firms are women and BAME people making only, you know, 8.5% of senior leaders. That's crazy. What yeah. what for you are the you know the the barrier the key barriers that women ethnic minorities face in in the tech industry and and what can we do yeah to you know to, to do better you know speaking of my own experiences I've worked in tech now for ten years and I think it is really important for us to remember that a lot of the decisions that are made by people in leadership by people in power by any person really is not always a rational one right? It just, it isn't. And a lot of the times when we try to make sense of the root cause of diversity, like, goodness, like, how can there be so few black people in boards, so few women at boards, so few people of color within tech? We forget that the people that create this situation are not acting rationally. So for example, we know that implicit bias exists, right? We know that if you put an English sounding name on a resume, you're more likely to get called up for an interview than if you put an international sounding name on a resume with the same credentials. Yeah. And that study has been repeated so many times and it still happens. Same kind of thing. Replace Emily or Abadesi with a male name and obvious male names. Again, same resume. You increase the chance of that person being called up for interview. So even though companies know that that happens, there are still many companies who are not training employees on bias. So where is the sense in that? So you know this is an issue that's proven in research. You know that this is an issue that's also directly impacting your ability to recruit, your ability to promote, but you're still choosing to do nothing about it. And then maybe you're also still asking the question, oh, why don't we have more women and black people on the boards? So I think one of the things that is really important for us to call out and, for, and a really important narrative for us to keep alive is the fact that people act in a way that makes no sense. 
And they have to be called out for doing that. And that is many of us, all of us, and, and so many gatekeepers. And I think another thing that we have to recognize is that the double standards are still alive and well. It's one thing for men. It's another set of rules for women. It's one set of rules for, oh, people that went to your university or people that went to the same grad scheme as you. And another set of rules for the people that didn't. And I think while those double standards exist, and we're always going to have this diversity problem, because the reality is there's no space for women or any other underrepresented person, black person, Muslim person, disabled person to be anything but excellent and perfect in every way just for them to access an opportunity. Oh, but if you are a mediocre person that represents the dominant groups, I'm willing to take a chance on you. Oh, you've got this university on your CV. Yeah, sure. Come on board. There are a lot of stupid people that went to Harvard and Oxford and Stanford, by the way. Right. Just like there are a lot of really smart people that didn't go to university at all. But these double standards exist and they're probably always going to exist, which is really sad. But I do think that that's why this happens. You know, people will say in the same breath, I want to hire women onto my board and then say, oh, but I can't find any qualified women for my board. <laughs> oh, really? Literally not not one single qualified woman. I mean, I think it was like the, the was it the Guardian and the BBC? The UK government did an inquiry onto why there are so few women in boards. And they decided to publish the most ridiculous reasons that were shared by chief executives and chairmen of boards. You had to laugh. One of them said, all of the good women are taken already by other boards. All of the good women. All of them. Yeah, all of them. (laughs) Uh, Another one of the answers was, well, we've already got one. Isn't that enough? Yeah. And then another one was like, women aren't interested on being on boards. We've tried. To me... None of those statements make sense. (laughs) I would be embarrassed to even say something like that, let alone be quoted on saying something like that in an article. But we we have people with influence and power saying things like that. And then we have other people publishing things like that. And then suddenly that's like an actual story that someone believes. There's like probably a significant portion of people out there who genuinely believe women do not want to be on boards. But hopefully this is changing. (laughs) We we need we just need to, you know talk about it and have, you know, be, be more active and, and trying to change the system is hard and it takes ages. So maybe today we can also focus on what we can change for ourselves. Yeah. I, I try with Vespot often to say, you know, s- sometimes you need to ignore the noise um, and just do it for yourself. So totally. today if we talk about understanding your worth and, and negotiating for yourself, I'm sure there's a lot of things we can do in the workplace and, and, you know, outside of the workplace, understanding that women and women of color, black women, we can ask for more and we are worth a lot more. So can you tell us, you know, I mean, maybe give us some tips, but I know we could talk about negotiating for hours and hours, but how to, you know, get started? What is the role maybe of of mindset when you go into these, these discussions? Yeah, I think it's so important for each of us as individuals to really do the work of like auditing what we spend our money on and having an idea not just of what we need to survive, but what we need to thrive. Right. And that should be the starting point of every conversation you have about money, because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what budget your company has or what budget that potential client has. What matters is what you need. Yeah. Not what your peers are earning or or your friends. I mean, this is so personal. 
Exactly, exactly. Um, you know, they've done all these like studies that show like what is like the maximum amount of money you can earn and then really be happy. And it kind of peaks around 50K a year because after that point, yeah. like the net, the net happiness is actually then impacted by like the stress of that and like all this kind of stuff. So it's like super interesting. But yeah, so I think for me, like the first starting point I'd say is like, actually like understand how much you earn. I think I was probably like already 23 or four when I first got a friggin' Excel sheet and wrote in every single row, you know, looking at my bank statement, what are my direct debits? What am I spending money on? You know, I was already like an adult before I even thought of doing that. And I was like, oh, okay, wow, this is the first time I've done that. That's really interesting. Can I ask you, did you, did you learn about this uh, somewhere? Because we know like, you know, there's like literally no financial education, financial literacy is, is low. Did you have any influence on like your, you know, your maybe money mindset or the, the way you manage money? You know, going back to these like self-help books and self-help articles, yeah. I, I just would subscribe to email newsletters like personal finances, money saving expert. And I think this was an activity that I saw that was suggested in money saving expert, something around how to reduce your debt. I think this was a time when I was realizing like, OK, I have credit card debt. I have student loan debt. I'm like one of those people where I'm just like afraid to check my bank balance until I find out I can't withdraw any more cash. This has to change. Um, <laughs> and so subscribing to things like Money Saving Expert, I saw the suggested activity. So I just did that. And that for me is now an activity I do regularly and I look forward to it. You know, years on, it's great. It's like so nice to just get the sense check of like, okay, this is what I'm spending. What's the sum of that? Okay, that how much am I earning? Okay, cool. What's the delta? Cool. How much should I save? How much should I invest? How much should I put in my fun fund? So yeah, I would definitely say to you know everyone who's listening, that first starting point is what are your outgoings? And what are the things on top of your outgoings that you would like to have? Like, are you putting money away to save up for a deposit? Are you putting money away to save up for something else? But like having a clear figure in your mind of what that ideal amount of money to earn every month is, it, is so empowering. And then on the other side of that coin, also having a clear idea of how much you spend (laughs) is also really useful because if you're in the habit of knowing how much you spend, then you don't even need to check your balance that much because you can just like try to gather that discipline of like, okay, hang on a minute. Like in an ideal world, you almost want to like hardwire into your brain all your budgets instead of having to check something constantly. At least that's what works for me because I don't really respond well to like inputting something every day, getting a notification every day, I work a lot better by just kind of like trying to do it by second nature. So yeah, that for me, I say is like a great place to start. Like, where am I? Like, what's my state of affairs? And then I think the next thing is to really start to decide where you want to be disciplined because it's really a personal choice. You know, how much do you want to spend on luxuries or how much do you you want to sacrifice luxuries in order to save up for something else? Starting to think about your short-term and long-term goals is really helpful. You know, I'm very fortunate because I've reached a stage in my life where my student loan debts are pretty much gone. And that was pretty much all of my 20s. For me, my 20s was like paying off credit card debts, paying off student loan debts, and trying to get a deposit (laughs) together. I could only really achieve the first two things. Now I'm in my 30s and I'm married and I've had help from my family and my husband's family. I've entered this like new stage of personal finance where I I own a flat, which is amazing. So it's like, wow, okay, I have a mortgage. That's great. And now I'm in a situation where I'm trying to build up my savings again, because we all know that to buy a property, you need to pay a deposit. And that takes quite a lot of cash out of you. So I think 
for me, it's also been about balancing short-term goals and long-term goals. There are times in my life where I wasn't saving a lot. I lo- I really love to travel. You know, I went to Tokyo in 2012 with one of my best friends, Coachella earlier that year as well. I literally spent my whole Amazon first year bonus going to Coachella, which other people (laughs) might have been a bit more frugal. They might have maybe like saved half of it, invested (laughs) some of it. 25 year old me was like, I've always wanted to go to Coachella. Let's do this. Uh, Let's road trip around California. But hey, you know, I guess that's classic millennial investing in experiences. But I'm sure you don't regret it. (laughs) No, I definitely don't. I definitely don't. Just being able to balance like the short term and the long term and deciding what I'm willing to be disciplined about is is really important. And then I guess like the final thing I'd say is like just being willing to like take risks or understand where you're willing to take risks and what you're willing to lose. So just for example, you know, around 2017, I guess, was when I first really started paying attention to crypto properly. Everyone was talking about Ethereum. Everyone was talking about Bitcoin. I was running Hustle Crew full time. Every time I'm in a co-working space, someone's talking about crypto. So that's when I first decided that from an investment perspective, I would also be willing to take riskier bets in really small amounts. I think I bought like 50 pounds worth of Bitcoin and like 50 pounds of Ethereum. And then as soon as the balance went over that, I like took out my original investment and just left the return in my account. And I still always say like, you know, if I lost it, that's fine. I don't mind. Yeah. But yeah, I would say those things like know how much you spend, know how much you earn, know how much you'd like to earn, decide where you're going to be disciplined, but where you want to splurge and then also decide how much risk you want to take. No, thank you. That's super useful. You know, this first step and and, and that's not... I think when you think about, you know, negotiating and asking for more, it's not necessarily something you do, but I think it's good that, you know, taking a step back, organize your finances first and then go into your, your, your negotiation. So once you realize, okay, I don't earn enough money, <laughs> I should earn more. You want to go start, you know, a, a negotiation. But I think now there's a, a, you know, this extra layer of complexity. We're in lockdown, we're all working from home. Uh, we are behind our screens all day. I hear there's, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm self-employed, but I hear there's lots of, of pressure on people mm. who are working full time because what are the boundaries? How many hours are you supposed to work? You get yes. more projects. You work with people who potentially have, have kids. They're not, you know, they're homeschooling at the same time or you homeschooling it's all quite complicated and then you want to go and have this salary negotiation how how do you do it and do you have a few a few tips for you know negotiating your your salary yeah i think it's so hard but it's also so important and it's really up to you to again think of your risk profile and and think about your priorities like are you going to walk away from that company if you get a no and i think it's really important for us especially now in these times to do that like we probably do have to be willing to walk away and and get a new job if we want to earn more because companies are being really tight and really cheap. So I think that's like the first thing I would say, like, even though it's really scary, like it, it can also be very liberating to decide how far you're willing to go to earn what you believe is your market rate. But yeah, definitely, definitely put down your accomplishments. Like that's the first thing, like you need evidence to make an argument for asking for more. And the more you can list and quantify as much as possible, this is what I did, this is how much I brought in, et cetera, et cetera. That's such a great starting point for the conversation. The next thing is to like really approach it as a collaboration. There's an incredible book called Ask For It, and it's all about how women can negotiate successfully. And, you know, because we face likability bias and so many other types of gender bias, 
we do have to be tactical in patriarchy to get good results. And one way that we have to do that is by collaborating. Like we don't do well when we're taking adversarial style. Men do well when they take an adversarial style, but we don't do well. We have to put all our cards on the table and work with our managers to get their manager to approve more money for us. So, you know, bring your manager into the conversation as early as possible, set that expectation, let them know that this is really important for you and that this is, you know, that you've achieved results that deserve it. And then the final thing I'd say is like, if you are afraid to negotiate because you fear rejection or you don't want to seem greedy, work on compassion for yourself, right? Imagine that your best friend was telling you the same things. How would you motivate your best friend? How would you tell your best friend that they're worthy? And do that for yourself. Spend that time giving yourself confidence. Put on Beyonce lemonade, do a little dance in the bathroom mirror, put on red lipstick, spray your favorite perfume, whatever it takes to give you the energy that you are worth a million bucks do it because if you don't believe it, you're not going to be able to convince someone else. And that's often like the first point where we fail. So evidently you also worked for yourself when you set up a hustle crew. So I guess you had to really like negotiate for yourself. So it's not like, you know, negotiate for a salary, but it's mm. really like, you know, what are my rights, how I'm going to charge for my services and for my startup. So is this like a different money mindset? Um, how how did you feel about that? Yeah, I think for me, I really underestimated how difficult it is to go, you know, self-employed, founder, freelancer, and have to constantly justify your value and your worth. And it did at many times take a real toll on my mental health. I'm not going to lie. Like psychologically, it was really, really damaging to approach companies and offer diversity workshops or, you know, in inclusion consultancy and be told, okay, well, will you do it for free? You know, I went from being high earning tech professional, smashing my targets, winning awards at Amazon and other companies I worked on, amazing client reviews. I was the kind of person that would travel for work if I had to buy a first class ticket London to Manchester to see a client for 300 pounds. It didn't matter because I could expense it you know, yeah. going out for dinners with my team. We could blow thousands of pounds easily in one night just for a social event. And then suddenly on my own as a CEO and founder in tech, I couldn't even get someone to pay me one pound to deliver <laughs> a workshop. I was like, wow, this is so, so, so demoralizing. So that for me, was like a real lesson in like in value and credibility and status. You know, it was one thing when I was representing a brand like Amazon or Groupon or wherever I worked before. It was a whole nother thing when I was just Abadesios and Saudi. Like, who the hell are you? Right. And now it's different. Right. Because Hustle Crew has been around for five years. We've won awards. We've been featured in the press. But five years ago, we didn't have that status and it was really, really hard. And I think one of the things that was really helpful for me was, again, speaking to people that, from my like perspective, really modeled success. You know, people that were earning six figures just from doing talks and workshops, people who were earning seven figures and only working six months a year doing talks and workshops, people that had fundraised and had built teams around their business or people that had bootstrapped, but were still, you know, running six, seven, eight figure businesses. 
And that's when I could just ask them, like, how do you price things? And that's when I started to learn about things like packages and pricing, not just for delivery, but for time. That's when I started to learn about like tiered pricing and how you should always, always, always offer options, because that way you can start to understand the client's budget and where the low end of the budget is and where the high end of the budget is. That's when I started to learn like language around you know, how you can state a price, but then caveat it with, but of course I really want to work with you. So, you know, if budget becomes an issue, we'll find another way. Right. And so I started to really like learn the tips and the tricks of the trade. And I remember one of my most impactful conversations, it was a guy, Mark, based in Amsterdam, Van Hayden. And he basically said, perception is reality. Like when I go online and look for Abadesi, what am I going to find? Because whatever I see about you is what I'm going to believe about you. So you need to spend more time showing off your thought leadership, showing off your credentials, showing me why I should be paying you this much. And that's when I started to realize personal branding. I need to go down this road of personal branding. I need to show off about what I do. And it is hard when you're a woman and a woman of color because people devalue you by default anyway. We're not part of the dominant group. We don't represent the status quo. So we have to work twice as hard to show off what we've done and show off why we're worth it. And I think once I got that and I accepted that, I just ran with it. And that's really what helped help me grow my brand and help me grow our value. It's crazy because, you know, if you were to book a hustle crew workshop now, you know, go onto our website, book our negotiation workshop, let's say you'll pay 3000 pounds plus VAT. When I first started, I charged 300 pounds for a workshop. Okay. So this is like 10 X over five years. And even then I would say 50% of the time I ended up doing it for free. Which is crazy, but I guess, you know, building a brand takes time and you have to start somewhere, but yeah, it's really understanding your value as you go. And to be honest, as quickly as possible, Yeah, which can be very uncomfortable. And you talk about, you know, overcoming the fear can you tell me how how you do that? Because I guess it's not something you've done once when you set up Hustle Crew. And I see, see with myself and building Vespod is trying to put myself into this situation where I know it's going to be hard. It's going to be tricky. I don't want to do them, uh, but that's the only way you can progress. And that can be financially or, you know, lots of, in lots of different ways. So how do you, do you overcome the fear and do these things that mm, are quite hard for you? I think I've always been like a relatively risk loving person. And that is definitely like to my advantage. And I think it's it's really important for people to be self-aware and kind of recognize like, oh, I'm just super, super risk averse. So it's even harder for me to get over this fear of failure. And then the second part is like, yeah, what are you afraid of? Because I think for most of us, it is fear of failure. Like we just don't want to fail. And there's all this really interesting research around how boys are encouraged to like play rough and, you know, fall and girls are encouraged to do the opposite, you know? And so like already from a young age, we're kind of like socialized into this risk averse behavior. But I do think it's really important for for us to really try to get to the root of that fear. Like, what am I afraid of? And, you know, sometimes when I'll do negotiation workshops, so many of the women in the room said, I'm just afraid of rejection. I have a good relationship with my boss. I have a good relationship with this client. I don't want to put a number out there where they're going to say no, because I'm going to feel rejected. I said, well, what matters more to you? Like avoiding being rejected or earning what you deserve to earn? Because that was what helped me get over my fear of rejection. And I was just like, I would rather be rejected 
And I would rather fail than sit here feeling like I couldn't do everything in my power to maximize my earnings. And so I'm still afraid all the time, (laughs) but I've learned to change my relationship with it. Whereas before I would avoid discomfort because bringing up money is uncomfortable, pushing for a negotiation is uncomfortable. I have learned to recognize that discomfort is a sign I'm doing something good for myself. I'm recognizing that I'm a woman in patriarchy, a black and Asian woman in a white supremacy society. The space of discomfort I'm entering, I'm creating, is a sign that I'm seeking justice effectively because I'm challenging the status quo. And the act of challenging the status quo is not going to be sunshine and rainbows. If it was, then everything would be very different. So I think that has been like a very transformative experience for me. Like I'm just more used to being uncomfortable and I'm used to getting told no. So for example, I remember once before I started Hustle Crew, I was basically unhappy in that startup, as I mentioned before. And at that point, I was actually convinced I had to leave tech because I just saw suddenly toxic culture everywhere. Speaking to my friends in the Valley, speaking to my friends in Paris, speaking to my friends in all other tech hubs, every other woman was like, yeah, no, tech sucks. So I was convinced I could go to advertising or some other industry. And one of my friends basically pulled a few strings and had me interviewing with the managing director of this company. And he was very interested in hiring someone who had a tech background, but also a journalist background. Basically, I ticked every box. And I remember at the end of our coffee, because I didn't realize it was an interview, right? It was one of those classic, let's meet for a coffee. And then it was a job interview. Then at the end of this conversation, he said, what do you want to earn? And I was so put on the spot. I was so put on the spot. I think at that time, my base was like 55. And then I had up to like 20 or 30 K O T E, like on top of my earnings. And I remember just doing like the classic move that I'd done at Groupon to Amazon, where I just added 10K to my base because that just to me was like the quickest blag. So I said 65. And the look of relief and happiness on his (laughs) face when he was like, oh, amazing. How soon can you start? Immediately made me realize, holy shit, I lowballed. I really, really, really lowballed. And going back to this idea of like changing my relationship with rejection, with the word no, with uncomfortableness and uncomfortable moments. That was the day where I was like, never again, never again will someone ask me how much I want to earn or how much I want to get paid. And will I say something that makes them smile? No, 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 no. Like going forward, every time someone asks me how much I want to earn or how much I want to get paid, I need to say something that makes them choke. (laughs) I need to say something that makes them spit out their tea, take a breath and go back to the drawing board, go back to the finance department and, and really stretch the budget because that's what a negotiation is. A negotiation is going back and forth. A negotiation is, okay, I know what I want. You know what you want. We've got to compromise. We've got to meet in the middle. A negotiation isn't what do you want? This number. Oh, great. Cool. Come on board. That's not a negotiation. That is the sign that you have gone in too low. So once I realized that, I was like, okay, so discomfort, rejection, no's. Once I realized that, it just changed everything for me. And I think as I'm getting more senior in my career, I'm at VP level now in a global tech company. This is just part of the territory, you know, part of growing up and maturing in the corporate world as it exists right now is having difficult conversations. Sometimes they're about money. Sometimes they're about strategies. Sometimes they're about anything. 
But if you're serious about earning more, learning more, growing, whatever your field, then you need to get used to this. And, and that fear doesn't go away. It just becomes managed differently. And that's what I've learned. So the fear is still there. I'm afraid all the time. Like, oh gosh, here we go. But I know I have to do it. <laughs> so you've been learning a lot. You're still learning a lot. You're, you're growing. You're working on yourself and, and developing yourself. And you have a lot of energy. How do you preserve your, your energy? I mean, what do you do to you know, keep this like state of mind. And, and we talked about, you know, the noise, but how do you take a step back and, and try to see the big pictures and don't, you know, tr play these like lit little games? Do you have a few, a few tips? Yeah, I think the older I get, the more important boundaries become. So yes, I have a lot of energy and I'm very enthusiastic about my work. When I'm in work mode, I'm at 100%. But when I'm not at work mode, I mean, I am really lazy. I'm like not doing anything. I'm going to be reading my book. I'm going to be on FaceTime to my best friend and my goddaughter doing the floss dance with my goddaughter <laughs> or making silly faces. Maybe I'll be uh, in the kitchen, like cooking something fun or making a cocktail with my husband. I just think rest and relaxation and restoration and just play are so important to re-energizing us. So yeah, that's something I value more and more and more as I get older. When I'm at work, I will be my all and I'll give you my all. But when I'm not at work, leave me alone. because <laughs> <laughs> It's me time. So that's one thing. And then I think the other thing that I've realized is like, it's okay to ask for help. I think a lot of the times as women, we do try to do everything and we have so much pressure to be a good wife, a good employee, a good leader, a good friend, a good daughter, a good mother, like so many pressures all the time. And I think being able to recognize that that's one, impossible, and two, like really damaging sometimes, like putting that pressure on ourselves. It's okay to ask for help. I'm a big, big, big advocate of therapy. I know it's like a, something for privileged people because it can be very expensive, but any access you can get to mental health support, anyone who's just not your friend and not your family professionally trained to help you recognize harmful habits, behaviors, thoughts in your mind was really, really important. So I think being able to invest actively in my mental health has been such a game changer. Like I find time to fill out my gratitude journal. I make time to meditate. I have a morning routine before any of my you know, emails are checked or anything like that to invest in me. And that's been really, really, really helpful. And I've also tried to do better at recognizing signs of stress, signs of burnout. I think having worked in tech for like 10 years now, I just started to like normalize the cycle of burnout. Like, oh yeah, I just like work, work, work till exhaustion. And then yeah. six weeks, I won't be able to get out of bed. I was like, that's not normal, is it? Like, is this how life is supposed to be? I don't think this is how life is supposed to be in... I think the pandemic with everything slowing down also started to make me realize like that's not healthy. Like we need balance, we need routine. And I've just had so much more respect for for my body. Yeah. Um, I think as women, we're often too harsh for our bodies. You know, we go on social media, we see like beautiful, long leggy women with six packs and flowing hair and go, why don't I look like that? You know, and then <laughs> suddenly you're like angry at your body. And it's like, wait, hang on a minute. Actually, this body has been through everything with me. It's been through the freaking pandemic with me. I was like, I need to respect myself more. So I think also just really trying to practice compassion for myself has been incredibly transformative. I used to be a person that would dwell on my mistakes and 
you know, revisit conversations that could have gone better or revisit things that, you know, I received negative feedback about. I'm not that person anymore. At least I try not to be because you know what? There are enough people out there ready to take me down, ready to attack me. Why am I going to do that to myself as well? So yeah, it's a journey, but these are the things that help. Thank you so much. I have three quick fire questions. We ask this to all our guests. Woohoo. The first one is, what's the best financial decision you've ever made? <laughs> oh, probably buying some of that Bitcoin and Ethereum. <laughs> <laughs> well, like however many, five years ago or something like that. Because that was just a kind of like random gamble and it was, you know, just something funny, but it's probably like the best return I've had on <laughs> anything in that short time frame. What is the worst financial decision you've made? Oh, uh, this is a tough one. I think it's probably selling my Amazon equity when I left. The thing is, I had so much student loan debt. I just had to pay that off. It was like 10% interest every year as well. So it was like kind of crazy. But if I had kept it, it would be six figures easily by now. And what are the things you spend the most money on at the moment? Oh my God, Deliveroo, obviously, and Uber <laughs> Eats. I used to be the kind of person that would maybe get takeaway in the evenings back in the day before the pandemic. Now, if I feel like a matcha latte and a pano chocolate, I'll just go on Uber Eats <laughs> and Deliveroo and, and get them delivered to me. So I am spending so much money on, on takeaways. And then the next thing I'd say is like, like really comfortable basics. So for example, I've just like recently replaced a lot of my socks <laughs> with merino wool socks and I think I'm going to go through the same exercise with all of my knickers because I was like don't want to have any knickers that are uncomfortable I'm not going to be wearing any thongs in this pandemic I just need comfy <laughs> cotton and perhaps silk basics so yeah that <laughs> oh that's what we need yeah. <laughs> at the moment comfort yeah easy. thank you so much I really enjoyed our conversation can I ask you if there's anything else you'd like to to share or to recommend to people listening? Yeah, well, just thanks so much for having me and thanks everyone. I know money is tough, but just keep doing the work. Even listening to Vestpod and being a part of the community shows how much you care about investing in yourself. So please keep committing to this journey and you will grow and you will gain your confidence. And yeah, Hustle Crew actually launched a membership last summer focused on inclusion. We know that there are a lot of people that maybe are the only women in their workplace or maybe the only women of color in their workplace. And they want to be willing to spark conversations about things like gaslighting, microaggressions, bias in recruitment. If you're the kind of person that wants to do that, then check out hustlecrew.co slash membership. Uh, it's 12 pounds a month and you get weekly resources and monthly workshops with me and the rest of the team so that you can be an inclusion ambassador in your community. Amazing. And Abelizi, we can find your book, Dream Big, Hustle Hard, the, the Millennials Woman Guide to Success in Tech. You have your own podcast. Yes, Techish. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we can find you on Twitter uh, at Abadezi and on Instagram Abadezi. So I'll share all the links in the notes. So you can just click on these and follow Abadezi on all our socials. Thank you so much. Uh, I, you know, really enjoyed uh, having this chat with you. I hope I can see you. Yes, soon. me too. I don't know when. <laughs> on a Zoom call, maybe before. I hope so. <laughs> But thank you. And we, you know, we'll, I love seeing your, your progress and everything you're, you're doing, you know, for, for women, for black women for minorities so yeah keep the amazing work and uh, we'll be you know following you and helping wherever we can thank you so much emily really appreciate your support and definitely see you soon <laughs> thank you if you enjoyed this episode 
please take a couple of seconds to rate it on your favorite podcast platform. Also, don't forget to join our community on Instagram and Facebook and to subscribe to our newsletter on Vespot.com. Feel free to email me with your comments and questions over at emily at Vespot.com. Thank you. Speak to you soon. <laughs>